This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Soundbites here on The Mark Steiner Show, from your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSTL 90.7 FM. Soundbites is our weekly look here on The Mark Steiner Show at our food system, the environment, and our future. Today on Soundbites, we bring you a conversation about bees, inspired by an article written by one of our partners, Yes Magazine. We have a regular feature in partnership with Yes Magazine here on The Mark Steiner Show, and we bring our newest Yes Magazine podcast to Soundbites today, based on an article in their summer 2015 Make It Right issue. Meet the scientists breeding more resilient bees. With honeybee populations on the decline, scientists, lawyers, and even artists have set out to save humanity's most important pollinators. We talked to Lori Ann Bird from the Center for Biological Diversity, who was featured in that article and with some local beekeepers. Before we get to that conversation, we turn to a bill making its way through Congress right now, the Safe and Accurate Food Labeling Act. Sounds good, right? Well, it's actually more complicated. Food safety and anti-GMO advocates are calling this the Dark Act, Dark standing for Deny Americans the Right to Know because it would not require genetically modified foods to be labeled as such. The passage of the bill would have another big effect. It would overturn the mandatory labeling bills in places like Jackson County, Oregon, and Vermont, where GMOs are currently being labeled, and make it harder for state and local governments to regulate GMO plants. The issue is a complex one, so we begin this week's episode of Soundbites by hearing two different perspectives on the Safe and Accurate Food Labeling Act, or the Dark Act. We first talk to someone who agrees with the direction of the act and questions the local and state GMO labeling efforts. Will Salatman, who writes about politics, science, and technology for Slate and published a thorough article called Unhealthy Fixation, the Misleading War on GMOs. The food is safe, the rhetoric is dangerous. So let's, let's start with, this, with, with the bill itself. I mean, um, whose uh, opponents, of course, call it the Dark Act, uh, standing for Deny Americans the Right to Know. But talk a bit about your perspective on the safe an accurate food labeling act of 2014. Well, the Dark Act. First of all, there's a, a dispute between state and federal control of this issue, and right. I'm not going to sort of take a position on that. I mean, you can you can have your own views. No, no, I wouldn't ask you to do that. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but the the notion, I, I, what I would take issue with is the notion that a GMO label. Uh, fulfills somehow one's right to know what's in your food because the truth is that the GMO label tells you whether um, a genetically engineered ingredient is in your food, but it doesn't actually tell you more fundamentally what the deep down ingredients are. And so what I do in my article is go through and take some cases where you have similar ingredients in GM and non-GM food and so if you have a GMO label, it's telling you that there might be something dangerous in your food, which is not actually dangerous, but you don't realize that if you turn to the next shelf and buy the non-GM product, you're getting the same ingredient. Well, I mean, let's talk about this a minute. I mean, one of the, one of the issues here for people who, who oppose this act um, is, A, that people should have a right to know whether or not there are genetically modified organisms or in the food that they're eating. Um, and so it's, just, it's a question of right to know. Do people have a right to know that or not? Should it be labeled is the question just like one would argue whether or not you should label the origin of where the food comes from, the country of origin. Yeah, but but the, the, the category that you use to do the labeling is what fundamentally does or doesn't uh, tell you what's in the food. It tells you, you know, you, you have a right to know what the ingredients in the food are. So if I label your food genetically modified or not genetically modified, 
That doesn't, for example, tell you whether there is any um, Bt toxin in your food because Bt toxin is used in organic agriculture as a non-GMO uh, uh, pesticidal spray. And then there's a, it can also be used in a GM crop. So the GMO label, if I put it on or I don't, don't put it on, it doesn't actually tell you what's in the food. Clearly, you've seen and you talked about in your article the kind of um, the mindset of America, which is not trusting this. And let's talk about that for a moment, though, uh, the, the, the lack of trust. Um, that Part of the reason people don't trust is because there's such a lack of oversight um, in our Department of Agriculture and the parts of our government around whether it's GMOs or any kind of toxic material that there's this kind of, as people talk about a lot, of this revolving door between those who would make the regulations and, and, and the lobbyists in Congress for the biotech companies. I mean, I mean that, that's part of the heart of the problem here, that, 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 that there's no trust at all because of that revolving door. Right. And, but that's another case where it totally makes sense to me that people are suspicious of industry and they're suspicious of lack of regulation and they're suspicious of what's in their food. The problem that I have with the GMO debate, and this came across really clearly to me the more that I looked at actual case studies, is that in the anti-GMO movement and in the movement for GMO labeling, what we have is a selective application of skepticism, of suspicion, of regulatory scrutiny to GM products. And there's no analogous, no complementary, no fair, equal emphasis on regulation, say, of organic products. Um, so what you have is um, an, it's, it's almost like the people on one side are directing you to be skeptical of the people on the other side. And what you really need to do is sort of be balanced and measured and ask the same questions about all your food, whether it's genetically engineered or not. Of course, I mean, you talked to us. We have interviewed lots of farmers, whether they use GMOs or, or, and organic farmers, on this series on sound bites. I mean, organic farmers feel um, that the burden to prove organic is so onerous and overwhelming, it's almost impossible to even want to get, to get that label. And most of the ways they do it, again, are driven by things they don't understand. That's why I think a lot of foods don't even go for the organic label. I mean, so that, I mean, there, there are a lot of issues in this. And, 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 I, and, and well, I think as I you know, talk to people who want this labeling, my question to them is always, but genetically modified can mean lots of things. Right. Well, it's, a, it's a broad category, a, a very broad category. It's not just and, and it's not just kind of – we're not just about soybeans and corn. Right, right. Well, I mean organic labeling is notorious for this. You'll, there are plenty of organic farmers who – I mean they're farming organic but they're not meeting whatever is the technical standard for organic farming. You know, you buy an organic product, you think uh, – you know, we – I mean I got to tell you, Mark, we – you know, as part of doing our GMO article – we um, wrote to like 15 different companies that had products for sale at Whole Foods that said non-GMO on them, okay? So they're corn products, so they don't have what's called BT corn that has this BT toxin in it, right? So we write to them and say, well, you know, do you, can you tell us that your product, you, you, your product doesn't have BT engineered corn, but does your product have the organic BT, which is, you know, chemically the same thing? And they wrote back, and some of them said, we don't know. Some of them said, we're organic, therefore we don't have pesticides at all. Well, that's just not true. That's just not true. There's like 43 different organic BT pesticides. So what you have is even the companies themselves don't know what's in their product. Um, I've, I'm very skeptical that an organic label or a GMO label even is going to accurately tell you what's in the product. So – for argument's sake, let's say that the GMO labeling is counterproductive or not the correct way to proceed. 
there has to be a way to proceed for people to know what's in their food, how it's made. Um, and, and, and I think that, that that's part of the problem. We don't, we don't have the process with the government. Uh, and so people mistrust that. And when you look at the bill coming through, again, the mistrust lives there because the best amount of money being poured into pushing this bill, which would also kind of ban people saying we don't have GMOs in our food, being able to use that label. Um, is being pushed by the industry itself, which is why people don't trust the process of this bill. Yeah. I, I, I guess the thing that I would most urge people to do is don't fall for the illusion that if we put a GMO label on your food, it tells you what's inside. The, if you really want to know what's in your food, if you really believe in your right to know, unfortunately, the knowledge here, the information is much more complicated than a GMO label will tell you. And so the responsibility, I'm sad to say, falls on you because there is just no way we can fit on a label the details. You would have to go down and ask, what is the crop here that's genetically engineered? How was it done? What's the gene that's been put in? And what does the non-GMO alternative have? Does it have, for example, the same gene but in a different way? Again, I guess that's, again, leaving this to the people themselves is, is also kind of an inadequate answer um, for most people. I mean, I guess the, 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 the you know, when you, when you look at the studies that say GMOs are safe, and I've been trying to do some of this research and really read your article over and over again, and, and, I, and I agree with a lot of what you wrote in your article, but I also know from other conversations that, that a lot of the studies around GMOs have been funded by the very industries that want to produce them, and that there have been very few serious epidemiological studies that, that, that look at both GMOs and non-GMOs side by side. Right. And I have heard that concern. There is a lot of validity to it. My problem with it is that that is true of all food. That is true of the entire food industry. So much of it. I mean, the FDA has very limited ability to do its own work. They they, out, they, they let companies do a lot of this research, and then they, then they examine it. They look at the data, and they, do their own, they have their own expert ways of assessing whether they think there's anything false in the data, anything that's disturbing about it. But this, this is true of all your food, and it is fine to be skeptical of the food approval process, but I would be equally skeptical of the notion that, it is, that the government is, pays less attention. In fact, in, arguably, the government focuses more on the GMOs because there is such concern publicly about it. And so, so does your research lead you to believe that you have no concerns over what GMO might do? I mean, that when you look at the studies that, as I said earlier, I mean, I've found very, very few pure epidemiological studies, studies that really kind of look at a field of one and a field of the other, or have done tests on, um, 20-year tests on who's been eating what and who's not been eating what, you know what I'm saying? I mean, so, I mean right. that doesn't exist as far as I see. Right. Well, with with any technology, you know, the the newer it is, obviously, the short, the more short term the studies are. But uh, if you were to um, compare this in, historically to other food technologies, you know, this happens every time a new technology comes in, and we haven't held back the other technologies. Nothing, nothing that I've seen. I mean, my main takeaway from all of the research that I did is that there is nothing categorically about GMOs that would make me want to subject them as a category to a, a greater level of regulation than we presently do. Um, there are you, you would want to look at each case. You would want to, you know, in the case of like uh, the rainbow papaya, that's that's uh, a, a well known sort of GMO yeah. that yeah. where where you know that's now been eaten for uh, what what about seventeen years. 
Uh, There is absolutely no evidence that anything bad has happened from it. We know that the same gene that's in that papaya um, is in infected non-GMO papayas, which people eat, and nobody ever raises a fuss about that. So, you know, that's a, that's where you that's an example of where you drill down into this uh, into the case study, you learn enough about the crop, about the gene, about the comparative non-GMO, and you conclude there is no reason why we would need a GMO label for that. And then you could go through a series of others, but each of these cases, Mark, each of them is different. And so, I came away feeling that if you put a GMO label on my on, on if I come to the end of the store and I see a GMO label on something, I have no idea whether that means the product is better or worse than the non-GMO. And so I don't feel like I'm, I know anything more as a result of that label. This is, I really do appreciate the work you do. You, your article is absolutely thorough. Um, it's really interesting to read. And I look forward to kind of a chance to really get into this in a much deeper, longer way with you in a longer segment sometime in the near future. Uh, Will Salatin, who writes about politics, science, and technology for Slate, has written this article called Unhealthy Fixation, Misleading War on GMOs, The Food is Safe, The Rhetoric is Dangerous, and it, uh, we will, we will um, link to it on our website. And Will Salatin, thanks for all the work you do, and I appreciate you taking the time today. Hey, thanks for having me. And in order to understand the opposition to the Safe and Accurate Food Labeling Act, I talked with someone who calls through this bill the Dark Act, Colin O'Neill, who's Director of Government Affairs for the Center for Food Safety. This particular bill winding its way through Congress, not, not winding, but coming out of the committee and now not being debated on the House floor, or will be debated on the House floor, um, is a complex bill. Talk a bit about it from your perspective. Sure. Well, uh, you know, I think that this, you're right, that this conversation has been evolving over the past couple years, and states have really been at the forefront of pushing uh, and advocating for the consumer's right to know. We've had uh, over 30 states introducing bills or ballot initiatives over the past couple years to give consumers the ability to know what they're buying and feeding their families when it comes to genetically engineered foods. Um, And uh, three states are on record supporting mandatory labeling. Vermont, Maine, and Connecticut have passed mandatory labeling laws. And that, in turn, has spurred a conversation here in Washington, D.C., where members of Congress are deciding what to do about this issue. This, This week, the House is set to debate and vote on a controversial bill. Uh, As you mentioned, uh, the Safe and Accurate Food Labeling Act, H.R. 1599, or as we in the NGO community have dubbed it, the Deny Americans the Right to Know Act or Dark Act. So why why are the opponents of this bill dubbing it the Dark Act? I mean, tell tell me what's in the bill that's so onerous. Well, essentially, this bill is uh, an attempt by a number of House Republicans to uh, not only preempt state rights, but essentially keep consumers in the dark. And the bill would do that in a number of ways. First and foremost, it preempts the ability of states to require the labeling of genetically engineered foods and would prevent and prohibit any state from enforcing existing labeling laws, like those that have been passed in Connecticut, Maine, and Vermont. It would also bar the Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, from establishing a uniform national mandatory labeling standard and instead continues, in effect, a failed voluntary labeling system that we've had in this country since 2001 and has resulted in zero products being labeled as containing genetically engineered ingredients. Now, I understand that from one piece of this bill, from what I was reading, that um, one of the men who, <clears throat> who uh, introduced this bill, uh, Congressman Pompeo, Mike Pompeo, from Kansas, um, it was a debate wasn't did not kind of fully understand his own bill. Somebody said that in section of his bill would make any non-GMO claim a violation of federal law labeling. 
Is that, what, that that's even goes a bit further. It's not because you're saying one thing is you're saying we don't need GMO labeling, but the thing is saying places that put out food to us to buy can, would no longer be able to say this food no longer can, does not contain GMO products. Mm-hmm. Is that right? You know this this bill is really a moving target, and it has changed and been uh, written and rewritten by the biotech and agribusiness industry so many times that it's actually really hard to keep. Uh, uh, keep a handle on on what's in the bill. Um, since the Agriculture Committee uh, took up their um, amendment in the nature of a substitute and passed that bill out of committee, uh, it, that part of the bill that you're referring to has been revised. So existing non-GMO claims can continue to be used. Uh, however, the bill does set up a competing, now taxpayer-funded certification program at USDA for non-GMO foods. And so this could create even more confusion in the marketplace and uh, is at best redundant and at worst competing with a private sector labeling standard that's been developed by the non-GMO project. So what, what, is, what does that mean when you say being written and rewritten by the biotech industry? What, what, are, you, what are you saying there? You know, really, I think it, it became clear that that even Mr. Pompeo isn't steering this ship anymore, that once the House Agriculture Committee got its, uh, its claws around this bill, it decided to take it in a very different way. Um, not only have they tried to gut and limit the uh, authority, regulatory authority provided to the Food and Drug Administration and the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the bill now includes a section, specifically Section 113, that is a sweeping preemption of existing state and county regulations that may pertain to genetically engineered crops. Well, what about when some of the people on the uh, on on the side that support this bill argue um, that we don't really know enough about GMOs and what they can do or cannot do because they're so relatively new in our society mm-hmm. that, that that to be labeling them one way or the other. You know, we have a fundamental belief that all consumers have a right to know what they're buying and feeding their families. And the simple truth is that consumers are confused in the marketplace. Uh, Consumers Union uh, put out a poll last fall that found that 60%, over 60% of consumers were buying foods labeled natural, thinking that it meant non-GMO or GMO-free, when in fact that's not the case. Um, Unfortunately, there's a provision in this bill that would allow companies to continue making natural claims on foods that contain GE ingredients and other unnatural ingredients. So if anything, this bill actually continues consumer confusion rather than addressing it. And, you know, we feel at Center Food Safety that that the solution to consumer confusion is more information, not less. Unfortunately, this bill keeps consumers in the dark and doesn't give them any new information. So I, I'm really curious about where, where do you think we need to go with this? I mean, because I, I, I understand that. I mean, I think that the majority of Americans, by almost every poll that's been taken, uh, want to um, not eat genetically, genetically modified food, want to know what's, what, what they're buying, that they want to know if GMOs were in the food that they're buying, all that, and, and all that's real, and I think all that's necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, but since we know so little about, because genetically modified can mean lots of things, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, I mean, it might be the, the 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 things that are being put on corn and soybean that makes them um, uh, resistant to insects, which means that you, you need more herbicides and pesticides, and that gets into the soil and gets into the bees and does all kinds of insane things to our land and, and maybe hurts us medically, but we're not sure. I mean, you know, in our, it could hurt us um, in, in terms of our health. But then there are, there are genetically modified organisms that may actually enhance the ability to grow food. So, so how do we balance that out? 
You know, I think it all starts with, with providing consumers the information to actually have a, an informed debate. That, if anything, I think this conversation has become more polarized in the absence of labeling and the absence of information. And, you know, I always think about going to my uh, you know, family reunions in Ohio and someone inevitably asks about seedless watermelons or seedless watermelons genetically engineered. And, you know, I can understand why someone might think that because they don't have seeds. That <laughs> seems like something that could be genetically engineered, but that's actually just a product of conventional breeding. But I think it illustrates the point that, you know, in the absence of information, people don't know what's genetically engineered and what's not. People don't know what a genetically engineered corn is genetically engineered to do. Um, when, in fact, actually, you know, a lot of corn has been genetically engineered to produce an insecticidal protein that was never produced in that crop before. So, you know, most consumers would assume that a pesticide is something that you can try and wash off your crop or wash off your food before you feed it to your kids. And in this instance, that can't be done. So, you know, I think that we as a country need to have this discussion. We need to have serious and science-based debate. Um, but I think that all begins with information, and unfortunately, it appears that the House Republicans are, are, are willing to keep consumers in the dark uh, with this vote this week. So, and and the, the vote it seems on its way to maybe passing the House? You know, it's, uh, it will be a very interesting vote, and, and one of the few uh, times that Congress has been on record uh, on this issue. Uh, you know, Congress actually has never passed any laws governing how agencies are to regulate genetically engineered crops or products. So this is uh, this is certainly um, one for the history books, and you know because of these provisions of the bill that include sweeping preemption of state and local laws, that's putting a lot of traditional states' rights Republicans in a really tough spot. And similarly, many Democrats traditionally side with consumer rights and and, and more information, but you know are also being fed lies about. You know, somehow labeling will increase price to consumers, or we won't be able to feed the world. So, so. as we battle this question of the, the, this, this, the, the, whether or not this bill should be passed, and, and it's and it's really an important question for us to wrestle with, um, the, this safe and accurate food labeling act, which also, as we said, is being called by its opponents, you and, and many others, the dark act, it denies the right to know act. Um, so where would you take, where do we take this next? Where, where do places like the Center for Food Safety take this next? Because I think that most Americans, you know, it, that, that just viscerally say, I want to know. Mm -hmm. I viscerally say, I don't want this GMO. But there's so much for us to learn about all this stuff because we know that some of it is killing our soil and infecting our foods and killing off bees and all that stuff is real. Yeah, you're, you're right, Mark. And I think that, you know, President Obama has recognized recently that the current regulatory framework for biotechnology is not working for right. farmers, for consumers, for the biotech companies themselves. And so the administration's going through motions to now uh, decide over the next year how it can better regulate these products. And similarly, President Obama was on record in 2007 supporting the consumer's right to know. And, uh, and you know, we'd like to preserve the Food and Drug Administration's uh, authority to compel labeling and actually create a national solution here. I think th that it all begins with more information, and, and then we can have this honest discussion that will include members of Congress. But uh, this bill is not that honest discussion, and this bill doesn't do anything for consumers. Colin O'Neill is the Director of Government Affairs for the Center for Food Safety and joining us here on the Mark Steiner Show on Soundbites. And Colin, thank you so much once again for being on the Mark Steiner Show. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Of course. Thank you, Mark. I want to thank Colin O'Neill from the Center for Food Safety and Will Salatin from Slate for joining us for this discussion. We're just scratching the surface here. 
So we'll continue our in-depth look at the debate around GMOs and labeling in the coming weeks on Soundbites. And let us know what you think about the viewpoints you just heard. Send us an email to talk at steinershow.org. We have to take a break here, but when we return, we have a conversation in partnership with Yes Magazine, where we talk with beekeepers about how they're trying to creatively address serious declines in honeybee populations. And on our way to break, we're hearing Rock the Casbah by The Clash. On this day in 1979, Iran's new leader, the Grand Ayatollah Sayed Rahullah Mousavi Khomeini, banned rock and roll as a corruptive influence on the Iranian people. That decision inspired this song. You're listening to Soundbites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future here on The Mark Steiner Show. On your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Soundbites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future here on The Mark Steiner Show. From your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. That's Back to Black by Amy Winehouse, who passed away on this day in 2011. Earlier this month, we started a partnership with our longtime friends over at Yes Magazine, to produce radio stories from the amazing things they're writing about. There was an article in their summer 2015 Make It Right issue that caught our attention as something we've been discussing a lot here on the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites. It was called Meet the Scientists Breeding More Resilient Bees and Four Other People Working to Save the Pollinators. That article tells the story of how scientists, lawyers, and even artists have set out to save our world's most important pollinators, the honeybees. I sat down with one of the people featured in that article, Lori Ann Bird, Environmental Health Program Director and Staff Attorney for the Center for Biological Diversity. And local beekeepers, Bonnie Raindrop, who is the Legislative Chair for the Central Maryland Beekeepers Association, and Master Beekeeper Steve McDaniel, who teaches a course in beekeeping at the Irvine Nature Center. They joined us for this conversation in partnership with Yes Magazine. And, and since, Laurie Ann, this is your first time on the program, let, let, me, let me start with you. And you had this interesting sojourn. Let's just get a little background for our listeners, um, becoming a lawyer. But, but you've been in the environmental movement for a while, right? That's true, I have. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> About over a dozen years. So, so, what, and so you've taken this path. As I read in the article, you, you, you know, worked against the Keystone Pipeline and mountaintop removal and mining and more. Uh, but now you're into this fight around the chemical industry and pesticides and are also a lawyer to boot. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a bit about that, that, that why, why you, well, what this, this work you're doing now. Well, you know, when I first started doing environmental work, it was because I was started working on issues of agriculture and biodiversity because I realized that was the nexus of all the most pressing issues that I was concerned with at the time, um, the corporate control of biodiversity, government um, failure to rein in um, some of those abuses, overuse of chemicals, um, the the intense poverty of many farmers around the world, the fact that most farmers around the world are women doing subsistence farming that aren't able to make it um, very financially viable, and all these kinds of social justice issues swirled around in my head until I realized that the issue that I was most interested in was biodiversity and agriculture. So I've, I've worked on some other issues, but these issues have really always been 
my true love. And 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 talking about bees directly, I mean, this is this is uh, one of the one of the pieces in in the piece was that that you, you you there's a quote from here from you. There's a new list of insecticides in which the entire plant is insecticidal. The plant mm-hmm. is fine, but all parts are poisonous to bugs. Mm-hmm. Could you, what, talk a bit about what that means. What's the background to that? Well, so usually when we think about pesticides, we think about you know a chemical that is sprayed on top of a plant and then you can wash, you know, like let's say it's an apple and you can wash the apple and then the pesticide, you know, most of the residue you would hope could be removed. But with neonicotinoids and other systemic insecticides and and pesticides, you have something that's in the entire plant. So with a neonicotinoid-treated plant, let's say corn, the corn seed would be soaked in a neonicotinoid seed coating um, and you, often other pesticidal seed coatings as well. And then the neonicotinoid is taken up through the vascular system of the plant, and so the entire plant, therefore, is poisonous to um, bugs, including bees and other pollinators. So one of the things that is interesting to me, in the last few weeks I've had a conversation with some people who have just gotten back from a tour of Europe, uh, a couple, and um, he's also a beekeeper who lives not far from me. And and he said when he was in Europe that they have no bee problem in terms of losing bees, be, that they have a very strong hive production all through Europe because they have banned neonicotinoids, that, which is the poison we're talking about, uh, to save industrial crops that kills off the bee population. Steve, and then we would talk a bit about that the last time you were here. They did have a very serious bee problem. This is Steve McDaniel. Um, it wasn't until um, year after years of protest that they, the European Union finally did ban all use of neonicotinoids, not just homeowners but farmers as well. And that ban went into effect December 1st, 2013. Now the problem is they're persistent pesticides. So if they're, if they're seeing results already, that's amazing because some of these can last as long as six years in a woody plant. So... Um, I'm glad to see that the, the ban is helping. But we can't even get to, when you just talk locally for a minute, before, before I come back to Lorianne, we can't even, um, in the state of Maryland, uh, Bonnie Raindrop, um, get the state legislature to really pass bills that have anything to do with neonicotinoids. Yeah, we, we really had a, a great bill in front of the General Assembly this past uh, year, and it would have done two things. It was called the Pollinator Protection Act. And the one thing that it would have done was take the products that homeowners are buying that are come in the form of fertilizers and um, plant care chemicals and things of that nature. And if they contained a neonic, they would be taken off the store shelves, deemed to be a restricted-use chemical that required certain kind of certification to apply. And the second thing the bill would have done is label plant materials that are being sold in stores and nurseries if they've been pre-treated with neonics. And this was a very um, narrowly focused effort to try to limit the use of the chemicals where they're not really necessary. And, you know, we had a tremendous pushback from the chemical industry that was remarkable They refuted the science. We had uh, 1,100 peer-reviewed studies that were done from around the world that attested to the 
poisonous nature and all the ways it was um, killing and impairing bees. And, you know, the there was so much controversy about the science that the legislature decided to wait and look at the issue over the summer in a summer study so they could become more familiar with the data. And so the issue is going to be brought back before the General Assembly next year. I, I guess part of the issue here is the power of the chemical industry, Lorianne. I mean, that that's you know, when, you th- when we think about, when people think about bees, I think the vast majority of population in America, and the world maybe, but America for sure, um, are only now beginning to kind of think about, if they are at all, the, the, the power that bees as pollinators have in our world. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Um, and the chemical industry is definitely sweating as they realize the public is waking up. One great thing that happened here in Portland, Oregon, when we were having um, our hearings over the Portland neonicotinoid ban, which did eventually pass, um, but only applies to city property, was the chemical industry, of course, showed up um, in full force, and they said nursery owners will absolutely go out of business. They can't function without neonicotinoids. And then the very next person who testified was a nursery owner who said, I don't allow neonicotinoids at my nursery. I need bees. I don't need these chemicals. Um, And it was really Mm. beautiful and powerful. You know, it's ironic that uh, these chemicals are derived from nicotine, and the chemical companies are using many of the same tactics that the cigarette companies used to cast doubt on the science about the deadliness of smoking. They'll say, well, if there are 99 uh, articles or studies that show that they're dangerous, they'll say, well, scientists are not 100% certain. And they'll try to cast doubt where there really is no doubt that these things are deadly to all insects. Absolutely. In fact, there was this one study that found that neonicotinoids were much, much, much more toxic to wild bees, bumblebees and native bees, than honeybees, um, at, at causing massive devastation at levels that didn't even have impacts for honeybees. And <laughs> industry took that study and they said, look, neonicotinoids don't even have impacts to honeybees. <laughs> 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 and really, you know, tried to make, a, make it into a PR piece. It was really remarkable. You got to give it to them for you know taking lemons and trying to make lemonade. <laughs> well, and it's a two billion two billion dollar industry, and it and neonics constitute twenty five percent of the pesticides that are on the market. So there is a tremendous amount of money at stake. Well, let, let, now you said that. that let, me, let me pick up on that point. Um, and and the point is that that you that, that the neonicotinoids being used. If you said the twenty five percent of the chemical industry, which is one of the biggest manufacturing employers in this country, um, it, the jobs it provides, that our entire, whether you agree with the system or not, our, almost our entire agricultural system that puts most of the food uh, on the shelves in our grocery stores that people buy inexpensively are as a result of the chemical industry, and many of that, a lot of that is neonicotinoid other than people who can afford to buy other food at farmer's markets, which, doesn't, which is not the majority of people in America. Um, and so the, 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 there's, a real, there's, there's a real issue here in terms of power, money, jobs, um, and the entire kind of capital industrial system of America. I don't, and so I'm not, so I, just, I just want to put it, what I think is, 
the, the reality of the perspective of what we're facing. So, so uh, th- how do we think about that in, in the face of all that? Well, I think, you know, I think that the uh, let me go. Okay, Lorianne, no, come right okay go ahead. Go ahead, Lorianne. Okay. Um, one common myth is that we need these technologies like neonicotinoid insecticides or various pesticides or genetically engineered crops or whatever to increase yields and feed a hungry world. But the reality is that these technologies don't increase yields and they aren't causing any benefit for consumers or farmers. USDA did a study that found that there was no increased yields from neonicotinoid-treated soy and there was no benefit to farmers whatsoever. So these these chemicals are being used prophylactically. They're not using them where they're needed. They're not using them on specific bug outbreaks. They're just using them everywhere on over 100 million acres in the U.S. or over 100 million acres in the U.S. have these neonicotinoid seed treatments. Um, seed treatments on the crops that are planted. And so we're not actually treating for bug infestations in order to increase yields to feed a hungry world. We're just spreading chemicals across our landscape and causing this widespread devastation. But just before you jump in, Stephen, you can jump in with this as well. But mm-hmm. I just, just, I mean, again, to push in the point I was making, and this is not a, a, a point I'm making to support the chemical industry. I'm trying to deal with reality and see how we, I mean, the yeah. reality of our economic situation. So it's true that we may not need them, um, and then people make that argument back and forth, um, uh, Lorianne. But the other part of that is that people make the argument that our industrial agricultural system, which feeds the nation, does need it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's, it's that, that's because of the nature of that system. Not according, I mean, according to USDA's own studies, <clears throat> we're not, we're not seeing benefits from the widespread seed coating use of neonicotinoids. Um, so there, you know, there are a lot of things we could talk about with industrial agriculture and what it needs and what it doesn't need and what we need to feed a hungry world. But this kind of prophylactic use is not, is not resulting in improved yields. And in fact, one argument that we've been hearing out of Europe after they passed their ban was, oh, these farmers, they're um, fields are absolutely covered in bugs, and I have no doubt that that might be true for certain individuals. But mm-hmm. the reality, if you look at the yield data from Europe from last year, they actually had an increased yield last year post neonic ban. Um, so you know there are a lot of factors that go into that. There's weather and many things. So I don't, I don't know that you can say that stopping using neonics will increase yields, but it certainly did not create the massive loss in yields that many people were arguing would result. Stephen, what were you about to say? I'm sorry. Yeah, the, the $2 billion that, that Bonnie cited as to the cost of the chemicals um, is really just a drop in the bucket compared to the value of the food crops that they are used on. And um, call me cynical, but when I see a bottle that says, you know, put this on your flowers, um, I see an effort to kill pollinators, not just an accident, not just a byproduct. But I think this is intentional, that they are out to kill pollinators on a massive scale, and they're doing it very well. Why do you think they would be out to kill pollinators? Well, there are two ways you could make money off of losing all the pollinators. You could provide a genetically modified bee that would tolerate these poisons, and then everyone would have to get their bees from you at a high price. This is the same principle as Roundup Ready Corn. Um, where they can spray any amount of Roundup on it because they put a gene in it that enables the corn to resist it. But you have to get your seeds from the company that produces it, and you can't use save seed and use it yourself. Farmers have been 
taken to court and fined thousands and thousands of dollars for that. The other alternative, the other concern, which is even greater, is that they could genetically modify plants by putting in genes that uh, allow them to self-pollinate so that pollinators would no longer be needed for the crops that have been traditionally pollinated by insects, such as apples and 99 other crops, all the squashes, cucurbits, melons, and so on. Um, so if you had to get your seeds from this one company that produced the genetically modified seeds, uh, you would have a stranglehold on our food supply. You think that's happening? I don't know. You think you know, it's possible? It's, I, I think it's something we have to be concerned about. Um, I don't have any evidence that anybody is doing that except when I look at a bottle that says put this on your roses and flowers and there's not a word of warning on it about bees um, that this is an effort to kill bees. The the bottle that I've got on the table here is uh, Bear Rose and Flower Care, Bear Advanced, two-in-one systemic. That bottle contains about five grams of imidacloprid, the active ingredient. That stuff is so toxic that it only takes four nanograms to kill a bee. So this one bottle would kill one and a quarter billion bees, which would be every managed bee in the state of Maryland, and then some. One bottle, and there are thousands of these sold uh, in garden stores every day. And uh, before other I move, you about to say something? Other I heard you getting ready to speak. Um, but so, so, so Bonnie, let, let me ask this question. So, so that's what you're trying to. That's what, going back to the local level for a minute. That's one of the things you're trying to do in the state legislature. Yeah, yeah. We, we, I think scientists um, and bee researchers and beekeepers and a lot of agricultural people recognize that the cosmetic use of this product is an unnecessary risk. And when you consider that one of three bites of food that we eat must be pollinated by a pollinator, we're talking about a situation that is an urgent and critical threat to our food supply. So we want to at least remove the chemical out of the hands of people that really don't need it and uh, actually don't know how to use it properly. Studies have shown that, you know, the average homeowner is not going to, you know, take apart the label and read the fine print, and they've found that a lot of these products are put on uh, plants at 120 times the recommended dosage. So there's a, there's a really serious risk there. Uh, and uh, I'm going to come back to this other larger issue here, and then come back to maybe a, a, a note about what our urban areas might be doing, uh, some interesting pieces I've been reading. But, Laurie, and one of the things that we – last time we had this big conversation on the program with some, some length was last May. And one of the pieces I talked – I, I raised was an article that um, I read in The Raw Story, um, and it talked about a, a letter that was sent May 5th to Phyllis Fong, who is the uh, USDA Inspector General – uh, worrying that this, the quote was, that the possibility that the USDA is prioritizing the interests of the chemical industry over those of American public is unacceptable, the letter, the letter stated. Um, and, and that letter was signed, one of the groups that signed the letter was your organization, the Center for Biological Diversity. So could you talk in a bit more depth of it than this than what that meant? What was going on? What, did you, well, what do you think is going on? numerous reports that USDA scientists are being harassed or their research is being censored or suppressed. Um, particularly when it comes to research related to neonicotinoids. Um, the reports that USDA is harassing and suppressing its scientists for doing their jobs 
instead of using their findings to protect our pollinators is extremely disturbing. You know, as we mentioned earlier, the European Union has looked at the science and made certain decisions to protect their pollinators based on that science-based approach. Um, and so to know that this is happening, to receive reports from USDA scientists that this is happening is, um, is very troublesome. So, so what do we know about? I mean, so, so what is being done about that about that apparent relationship between the chemical industry and and USDA? I mean, that's, I mean, fairly insidious if true. Well, you know, we've always known about the revolving door between USDA and EPA um, and the chemical industry. Just yesterday, I read another report of a EPA official going to work. Um, for the chemical industry at CropLife USA. So this happens a lot. Um, there's a very cozy relationship between our regulatory agencies and the chemical industry. There's no question about that. Um, we're calling for an investigation. We hope we'll have one soon. We'll have the ability to bring into the light what's happening here um, and get back to a place where we can count on our agencies to respect the integrity of their scientists and make decisions based on the science. So I'm curious two things I want to get to here before we, before we complete our conversation is what strategies are for the future where you go from here, where we go from here. But also the other piece I've been reading a lot about is the, is the power of urban beekeepers, that pollinators in urban areas may be less affected by, or bees may be less affected by than in rural areas just because of the nature of urban society. That used to be true. As of four years ago, I can't keep bees alive in Baltimore City. I always have had hives You've there. Had a col- you have a colony in the city, right? <clears throat> I had four colonies there right. um, for some 35 years, at times as many as 12. But in recent years, I've been keeping four bees right in downtown Baltimore. This is miles from the nearest farm. So any problems obviously are not due to farm use of chemicals. Um, but now they, they just drop dead. Um, I can keep them there for a a little while in the spring when the trees are blooming. And uh, this year, the bees avoided the trees that I put them down there to get the nectar from, the basswood or linden trees. Um, They normally produce a wonderful honey, and um, this year there was nothing. So I moved my bees out of Baltimore just to try to keep them alive. So what I just said is mythology. (laughs) <laughs> no, it was true a was couple true. of years ago. But now it's not but because it has of... Changed, it changed very suddenly in 2012. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been four years now that all four colonies that I've had down there have died. Most gradually, some suddenly, but apparently uh, from pesticide poisoning. And that really tracks to when there was a shift in the chemical industry from really a focus on agriculture for dissemination and sales of these chemicals to the home and garden industry. And uh, there was a, a, a initially like 49 companies when the um, patents uh, on some of the products were uh, came off of the patent period of 12 years. There were suddenly 49 companies that were producing products, and they targeted the home garden market because the focus previously had been on agriculture. So we have just seen a big influx in products and you know, there's, uh, I think the last count was close to 200 products that are on garden shelves that are f- containing neonics, and the average consumer has no idea that they're basically turning their home garden into a killing field for pollinators, birds, and, um, 
you know, even reptiles. And it's the beneficial insects like earthworms and even the microbes in the soil are being wiped out by this. And the other thing that people need to um, be aware of, too, is, is that studies are now coming out to show that neonics are actually pose a danger to humans. They've um, found that the developing neurological system in babies is affected negatively by neonics, and it's also causing brain damage. So that's new information. And a study recently came out and was testified to down in Annapolis that neonics are tied to the death of molting blue crabs and also um, the even younger ages of um, crabs, the larval stage of crabs, are affected by a metacloprid, killed, basically. So, you know, we have a, a, a chain that, as these things are washed into our streams and down into the bay, that is affecting much more than people think. So, I'm curious, strategically, where, where do you think, Laurie Bird, that we go from here? What, what are the strategies to deal with? Which is clearly a huge struggle because, uh, effort because of, of the power of the industry and more. Absolutely. We need a ban on neonics in the United States. Um, a complete ban. Yeah. We need a ban. And the most urgent ban that we need is a ban on, um, on neonicotinoid seed treatments, which currently cover over 100 million acres in the United States. We also need um, home garden stores to take action and be proactive in this. We need the big retailers to stop carrying these products, um, as we've heard so much today. These products are killing bees in urban areas, so they don't have those urban refuges that they used to have. They're killing bees in rural areas. We need to bring our bees back, and the only way we can do that is by banning neonicotinoids. So, I, you know, a couple of things I'd like to all just conclude your thoughts on where we think we need to go here nationally and locally and what, what the, the, the issues that we address. I can hear people who listen to this broadcast saying, um, that's a, probably a great idea, but what about the jobs? What about our economy, you know what I'm saying? I mean, that is that is part of the argument from the chemical side as well as the, the people fearing about the future. Well, that's the smokescreen they put up, but as Laurieann said, it's really not true. But uh, they, they're, the chemical companies will use any argument, whether it's true or not, to support their position. Uh, they're not apparently uh, restrained by facts. Well, any closing thoughts? Bonnie, where are you going to take this for the state legislative season? We are. We're going to bring the Pollinator Protection Act back um, with the help of some of our key legislators like Delegate Healy, who sponsored the bill in the House. And um, we also want people to get involved uh, at the local level. You can go into your home garden store and you can go see the manager and tell the manager you want Neonix to be labeled on any of the products that you buy. It's a consumer right-to-know issue. And I think from the bottom up, if we get more support at the store level, then the stores are going to become much more proactive about it. And to ask questions when you, you know, are dealing with any kind of landscaping issue, are you putting neonics on my plants? Have they been pretreated? And to be aware that when this issue comes up again in uh, the, the legislative session, to please call your delegates and senators and tell them to support the Pollinator Protection Act. It's very important that we get this passed. We would be the first state in the U.S. to pass it on a statewide level. There have been numerous um, jurisdictions and cities that have passed similar laws, but we would like to be the first state. And, and just to close us out here, I'm, I'm glad you could join us, uh, Luann Bird. Uh, I mean, excuse me, Laurie Ann, uh, Laurie Ann Bird. Um, 
What, what strategically you all are going to do on the national level? Well, we're continuing to stay closely engaged. We're actually, um, well, <laughs> our strategy on pesticides is twofold. First, we're challenging old registrations that where EPA never considered the effects on our nation's most imperiled plants and animals um, and going after those old registrations. We're also going after new registrations hmm. of pesticides that are particularly harmful for imperiled species. Um, recently, we brought a lawsuit against a pesticide called flepiridiferone, um, which EPA and industry claimed was less toxic to bees. It's another systemic insecticide. The reason it's less toxic is because bees exposed to it will actually just drop dead in the field, um, and they won't bring <laughs> <laughs> the pesticide back to their hives, and so they claim this was bee-friendly. Um, but it's not very friendly for the bees that don't live in hives, uh, and it's not very friendly for the bees that are dropping dead from the acute effects. So they're basically acknowledging that many of the most harmful effects of neonicotinoids are these chronic effects where we see colonies just slowly dying all over the world. We see bee numbers decreasing all over where neonics are used. They're saying, well, if we just limit it to the most acute effects, maybe that'll be better. And <laughs> we don't buy that. So we're going after new products like that. We're continuing to go after neonicotinoids. Um, we're fighting for monarch butterflies to get protected under the Endangered Species Act. Um, those guys are getting wiped out by uh -oh. glyphosate, um, but their larvae are also susceptible to neonicotinoids, as are many creatures, as Bonnie mentioned. Um, so we're keeping busy here. <laughs> you are, and I, and I will just back up as we finish this. That we have been looking for our first monarch yet to be seen this seen season uh, in our, around our yard here in Baltimore where we broadcast from. I have yeah. not seen one yet. I have a big stand of milkweed. There's so not a we. monarch on it. So Me do we. Too. Not a monarch on None. it. <laughs> Well, you know, that's the, we've seen a 90% decline in monarchs um, in the past 20 years due to the widespread use of pesticides. And, uh, you know, everyone has the same story. The monarchs just aren't coming back. So we can turn this around, but it's going to take a lot of effort and a lot of dedication and persistence, but we don't have any time to waste. Hmm. Laurie Ann Bird, who we see in Yes Magazine and part of our Yes Magazine coverage, is Environmental Health Program Director and Staff Attorney for the Center for Biological Diversity. Bonnie Raindrop is Legislative Chair for the Central Maryland Beekeepers Association. And Steve McDaniel is a Master Beekeeper with 35 years of experience, teaches a course in beekeeping at Irvine Nature Center, uh, and uh, is also a chemist. Uh, and uh, Bonnie, Laurie Ann, Steve, thank you so much for being with us for this conversation. Thank you for having us. Thank, thank you for inviting so us. That's all we have time for in this week's Sound Bites on the Mark Steiner Show, and we thank you for listening. Tune in next week at the same time. We're going to be wrestling with questions of our food movement. How is it that with increased advocacy and calls for an end to industrialized agriculture, factory farming operations keep growing across the country? You don't want to miss that. The Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Delmarva Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. To podcast The Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.